I um, am, let's see if this works, there we go. So I'm kind of a big fan of movies, and uh, if I, you know, I'm, I'm like constantly fighting the temptation to show movie clips and stuff and sermons, um, but I kind of consider that cheating. So sorry, everybody I know. People love them because it's like, oh, good, you know, a break. But um, <clears throat> there are a number of things that you have to be willing to uh, suspend disbelief about when you're watching many movies. I saw a preview this last week for a new James Bond movie. And I was like, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure this would really happen. Um, you, you, you definitely have to suspend disbelief when you're watching a lot of stuff because things happen. You're like, that's not very realistic. But I would say of all the things that I've seen in movies that happen that just don't seem realistic, one of the least realistic things I've ever seen is any time in a movie when a movie parent says to a movie child, I promise, because I'm like, nope. Nobody would, nobody would make that mistake. Uh, one of the first things I learned having kids was like, uh, because they ask all the time, like, do you promise? And I'm like, nope, not a chance. Um, I am not in a million years going to back myself into that corner because, and I don't really even have a hard time saying no. I'm just like, no, you know, why, you know? Because I, I, don't know, I can't control everything, you know? I, I like, sometimes I think of stuff to say and I don't say it because I like mess them up, you know? Like, oh, asteroid hit the earth, who knows? You know, like who's gonna, who knows what's gonna happen? But then that's not good. So, um, but it's like, it's funny. And, and a lot of times my, my kids will ask me if I promise things that I'm not even trying to convince them of either. They'll just be really excited about something. Like, do you promise we can do this? Do you promise we can go? I'm like, no, I don't promise. Like, not at all, right? Uh, because, you know, you live enough of life and you realize this is, uh, I, I really can't, guarantee much in this life um, to people. In fact, because of that, we're often pretty wary of people who make lots of promises or who make promises at all. Uh, somebody makes a promise, you're kind of like, uh, I'm not really sure if you can deliver on that. You know, hence uh, the election season and cycle as it's beginning, right? Lots of promises that, you know, we're a little you know, skeptical about whether or not these people can actually do these things they say. Uh, and I, I, the longer that I've, I've kind of lived life, the more I've also learned that in terms of what you do even for a living, what people do, all the different ways that we you know, work and have jobs and careers, that regardless of what you do, uh, there's, a, there's a pretty big difference between really just the people who do what they say they're going to do and the people who don't. Like whether it's in business, whether it's in construction, whether it's in ministry or teaching or, or anything, there's a really big difference over time between the people who just say something and then they do it and the people that you don't really know. Um, in fact, a lot of times the people that make the most promises are the people that are making up for the fact that they never do what they say they're going to do, right? And so they're trying to convince you, which should be an indication to you, by the way, that if someone feels like they have to constantly be promising things to reassure you, that might mean that they don't have the best track record. Um, when we talk about promises and promises in the Bible, I think we come from this place of having such a strange relationship with this concept of the promise. Bible tells us that we really shouldn't make promises, um, that our yes should simply mean yes and our no should mean no, and we should do everything that we can to ensure that the things we say yes to happen and the things we say no to don't happen. Um, there's like very few situations where we're really supposed to make promises according to scripture. Um, when, when we look at this idea of Advent, of preparing for the birth of Jesus, 
we're looking this year at some sort of less conventional themes, I guess you could say. Normally, we used to like faith, hope, and love, and joy, and peace. We're, last week, we talked about prophecy and the role of that in people anticipating the Messiah. This week, we talk about promise and how Jesus is ultimately the fulfillment of all the promises that are made in the Bible. But one of the biggest, if not the biggest, promise that we see is this one with Abraham that Pastor Matt just read. Um, in the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham, and he, uh, his name's Abram, and his, his wife's name, I'm going to call her Sari, Sari, because I'll say Sari, because, you know, that's how I say it, and you can say it however you want, and uh, I don't care. But for today, that's how I'm going to say it. I know her name changes to Sarah. If that's why you guys are laughing, I, I figured that part out. I did that. I read that far, at least. Okay. Um, so God comes to them, and it says to Abram, um, a guy who's older, hasn't been able to have kids, really wealthy, and back then, when you're wealthy, it means you have a lot of stuff. Uh, it does not mean that you just have a bank account with a lot of money in it. It means you have tons of animals, tons of people, tons of land, tons of stuff. And God comes to Abram, and he says, I'm going to use you to bless the world. And uh, it's going to be through you and through your name that I'm going to bless these people and your name's going to be made great. All that I want you to do is move, leave the land of your fathers and go somewhere else, which is a very difficult thing to ask of someone, especially someone who's wealthy and has to then move a lot of stuff and a whole bunch of people. So a little bit later, God says to Abraham, um, I'm going to do this through your descendants. I'm going to actually use your family and your descendants to bless you. And at this point, Abram's kind of a little skeptical because he and his wife are older. They haven't been able to have kids. This is a huge deal at the time. Um, if you can't have children, that's really considered missing out on like the biggest blessing that people can have in family and, and in life. Even someone who's wealthy like Abram, uh, to be this wealthy, to have so much and yet not be able to have kids is really probably hard. Basically, God is hitting the ultimate sore spot on Abram. And he's saying, you will uh, do this through your descendants. And so Abram gets frustrated after a little bit, and he says, God, I've got like this relative, I've got this guy. You're basically telling me that through that guy, like everything's gonna happen, like it's gonna be through him. I don't even have kids, I don't have kids. I won't even be through my own offspring. And that's when God says to him, I will give you a son. I'll give you a son. And through him, you will have as many descendants and it will lead to as many people as there are stars in the sky. And he shows in the sky, and this is in Genesis 15. And that's when he changes his name to Abraham and his wife becomes Sarah. And this promise that God makes to him is huge. Now, any promise has a couple of parts to it. There's a couple of different parts to what it actually looks like to be promised something and to have it play out. And the first part is this, what we're, re what we're reading about and you're hearing about, which is just where someone says something, okay? You call the, I'll call it the pledge, okay? The pledge is, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what's going to happen. There, the pledge. God comes to Abram and he pledges to him. He says, this is what will happen. Now, a pledge is the beginning of a great undertaking. And that is what God tells Abram will happen. He makes him these promises, and they involve land, they involve descendants, and they involve blessing. God says, you will be blessed, but even more than that, you're going to be a blessing to the world by bringing me to the world. 
What's interesting is the Old Testament doesn't specifically have a word for promise. In fact, most of these situations that are, so what we're reading about in Hebrews is actually talking about what happened in the Old Testament. And so they talk about it and they say God promised him, God made a promise. In the Old Testament, there is no word promise. It just says God said this. That's it. So, and God said to Abraham. And we interpret that as God promised Abraham. Why? Because everything that God says is a promise. Because God can control and he can ensure that what he says will happen will happen. What he says won't happen isn't going to happen. So it's kind of redundant in the Old Testament, they thought, to, to even indicate the idea that God would have to promise. Because God just says something. He says this thing, and that is the thing that will happen. But why does he do this? Why does God tell him something that hasn't happened yet? Why not just let things unfold the way that they naturally would? That's how God seems to do things most of the time for us. Uh, We don't get a lot of forewarning, a lot of advance notice on things. God just allows those things to play out, and we deal with those things as they come. Much of the time, that was definitely how it happened in the Old Testament too. But God chooses sometimes to go to people and say, here's what's going to happen. And he does it because he wants them to start living like that thing is going to happen. I'm going to start asking you to do some things, build a big boat, for example. I'm going to start asking you to do some things, and I want you to do these things knowing what's going to happen. You need to live your life from this point on as if that thing will happen. And that's why I'm giving you some warning about it now. God makes promises that kind of build on other promises. He'll sort of like new promises or build on old promises that God makes to us. But if this is true, then what that means is that, I think we read about it here. No, I can't see my slides on my phone as usual because Siri was talking to me in the last service. So I'm just going to, you're going to see a lot of stuff ahead of time. If this is true, this idea that everything that God says to us is simply what will happen and what he says won't happen simply won't happen. If it's really that simple then ultimately, that means you have this Bible, this book, filled with truth, and it all is real. And what that means is that in basically a world where we are constantly discerning what is true, what isn't true, what can I trust, what don't I trust, what will actually happen, what won't actually happen, In a world where we know that we don't actually have control over much, this ought to bring us tremendous relief, freedom, and joy. It's hard because even the things that we want to promise other people most desperately, we often can't. One of my children says to me, you know, if I tell them I love them, and they say, well, will, you, will you always be there for me, right? I know relationally, I'll always be there for them. That wasn't even mine. There's an iPad right there. Whoever's this is. Yeah. Is that the British man voice, or is that the Australian man voice? Okay. Yeah, all right, Steve, that's fine. Um, 
I mean, he's, he's Australian, so that's fine. Um, edit this all out of the podcast. If I'm talking to my kids and, and, and they say, we always be there, I want more than anything to be able to say yes. Every minute of your life that you are alive, I will be there for you, with you. But I can't say that. I don't have control over that. So God says these things to us. And these things that he promised our forefathers are are no different from the things that he promises us. He says, you are God's chosen people. You can be God's chosen people. You are God's chosen people. You, here in the church. Doesn't matter whether you're Jewish, whether you were raised in this family or background or that family background, you are God's chosen people as a part of the church. You are guaranteed salvation forever, he says. That will happen. That promise is a true promise. You really do only have to trust in Jesus. For real. That's a promise that he makes. But as I read through these things and I think about them, I go, do these promises really mean as much to us as they did to the people when God was originally making them? Well, what we find when we look back is that they often didn't mean as much to those people as they should have. But when I look at his word, do I actually feel like what I'm looking at is, is, is words that are true, that I can trust in? Or is it simply more that I have to not be certain about and kind of hold with a grain of salt like everything else when it comes to truth in my life? And a big mistake that we would make would be to think, you know, uh, we sort of, God, God probably is going to make all these specific personal promises to us, right? Like he did to Abraham, you know. This is basically like an issue of, sort of fertility, infertility, you know? So God promises to, that to people as well now. And similar promises in our life about things that will happen in our life, things that will happen with our jobs, stuff like that. I mean, as Ellie and I struggled with infertility for years when we were, when we were first married, we, we there, I, I can't, there, was, there was not a point where God promised us, he made a promise to us, you know, this is what will happen when it comes to you and, and to a family. As much as we wanted to see that same personal promise, but... What a mistake it would be for us to miss the other things that God promises us. The entire Bible is full of these things. Ultimately, God's word is true, and the question is, do you actually live that out? Do you believe that thing? Is it enough to have what we have and to say this is real? We have so many ways that we filter through God's word even. Uh, You know, we read something and then we go, well... It's true if sort of pragmatically or practically it makes sense, right? So when I see it played out in life, when I see how it makes life better, because God makes life better in every way, right? If I see when that happens, then I really know it's true, then I really know I can trust it, then I really know I can believe it, right? Except there are times that God calls us to do things that don't just make our daily life better. That don't just make it so that our neighbor would look at us and say, your life is better than mine. In fact, Man, the number of times that I have seen that what actually causes people to look at someone and say, you have something in your life that my life is missing is when they go through suffering, not when their life works out better and they're happier. It, we, we, we take rationalism and the idea that like, 
you, you, you have to be able to prove everything scientifically because, you know, that's clearly how we base all of our beliefs, right? I mean, if I, like, get in an airplane and I, and I you know, am not like a pilot, but as I'm in the airplane flying, I, I don't do that just because I've, like, proven mathematically and scientifically in the physics of it and that it will work. I believe lots of things. I trust lots of things that I cannot, in the moment, prove to you, know that I've done the work of that thing. But we say, if I, if I can't prove every aspect of it rationally, then I cannot believe it. Or we do the other extreme where we say, oh yes, everything that I believe can be proved rationally and scientifically right now. When Bruce was talking, when I first came to this church and I was talking to Bruce and Jan, and we were talking about, they were telling me kind of what they did, them and the Wymores and other um, couple of this church that currently is in South America doing Bible translation. Um, they were telling me about it, and I thought, Bible translation, that sounds really exciting, right? That sounds, no, I was thinking that sounds really boring. And, uh, and then I was like, man, they're going to be so happy when I pull out my phone, and I'm like, guys, there's an app that actually does this, so you're welcome, right? Uh, no, wait, I don't think I will do that because then they would be like, our life's work, you know? What are we doing? You know, they can do it with a phone. No, because that's not actually how that works, by the way. You can't just get, take out a phone and translate. It does take a lifetime of work by many, many people to see the Bible translated. But to think about what that means for a group of people to go from where they don't have God's word in a language they understand to having it. I mean, we talk about like the internet, man, that changed the church, right? Or, or, you know, technology, modern days, or, you know, we talk about the difference between being in a nation that is friendly towards your faith versus one that doesn't allow you the freedom to worship your faith, how big of a difference that would be. Think, we can't even conceive of how much of a difference it would be to one day not have the promises that God makes us, the truth that he tells us, in a way that we can read and understand them ourselves whenever we want, and then to have that one day. Like how much that ought to hopefully change our lives, our pursuit of the things that we actually believe in and live for. And yet much of the time, we don't really feel that way about this thing. No, we have to filter it, we have to see it proven in certain ways. And only then, we can only really believe and trust in the things that we ourselves have experienced personally. So the first thing is this, this, just this pledge that God makes to us, this, this beginning of any promise that anyone makes to a person, which is just, here's what will happen. The second part's the really hard part. The second part is the waiting, right? Because a promise is telling us about something that will happen, that isn't happening. So the second part is we persevere. This is no fun. Perseverance is no fun. Don't even like talking about it. Having to wait for something, having to be patient for something. We read about this in Romans, a commentary on Abraham in this portion. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he has been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. I just have to stop for a second and say this. Uh, Last service uh, was the first time in my life that I've read this verse to people who were in their 90s, and it feels pretty awful to read those words, right? Uh, 
when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was 100 years old. I, mean, I know some people in their 90s who are doing great. They're doing better than I am. Uh, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. We see that he persevered. We see that he waited, because this is what a promise requires. God wants the recipient of the promise to know what's coming because they will need to know it in order to get there. But they also have to be mature enough to wait. When you look at what patience is in the Bible, that, that word, that when it's really used in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, it's used in two instances. One, it's used in Acts a lot. When people are preaching, this makes me feel better, when people are preaching and they keep saying, please be patient, please just be patient, just please be patient. And what they mean when they're using it in Acts is they're basically saying like patience is the ability to listen without interrupting and without stopping them. Okay, so please just don't interrupt me, just don't stop me, please don't get angry, just let me finish, let me finish, let me finish. Be patient, right? It's just the willingness to listen and to not stop. The other is enduring difficulty without getting angry or upset. To have hard things happen and to not get angry or upset over those things. That's patience of another kind. That's the other instance and when it's used. Usually the hardest, the largest component of pain when it comes to promise is simply the waiting. The waiting for the thing to be fulfilled when it hasn't yet. Most of us are not particularly good at waiting. Waiting is really, really hard. Oh, waiting is really hard. Uh, and we do things as we wait for these promises to be fulfilled. We work. We go about living our lives and working and doing things. We don't just stop everything in life because waiting doesn't just mean stopping everything, obsessing and thinking about that promise but waiting can mean pain. I mean, how many of us associate that word with pain, right? Waiting, pain, it's painful. I want it, I want it now. But what waiting cannot mean is it cannot mean forgetting. It can't just mean, what God doesn't mean is that then Abraham heard and he was just like, cool, I'm not gonna worry about that for a couple of years. You know, I'm just gonna go about doing other stuff. I mean, this was a constant present thing in his mind, especially when God told two people who were older who had long given up on the ability to have children that they would. This is something that they would think about every single day. But we have this, there's this truth about waiting, and it is that it reveals something about us. The way that we wait for things, our ability to Endure situations with perseverance when we are not in control says perhaps more about us than anything else. There is nothing that reveals our heart like having to wait for something. There's this word that comes to my mind when I think of waiting. It's the word antsy. Now, I could believe me. There are a lot of examples I could give you guys about what antsiness looks like. Okay. But I'm not going to talk about my kids because, which I could, about my kindergarten and second grader and what antsiness looks like because they just literally never stop being antsy, right? 
Where does the word antsy come from? Not that hard to figure out, right? I looked it up, didn't really need to. It is literally the word to describe if you had ants in your pants, what you would be doing. That's antsy, right? And I'm like, oh man, like you think about this. I'm thinking about every kindergarten class, every preschool group of kids that I know, antsy. We don't think about this as much with adults, but we get antsy. Not in the same way, right? We don't like do this when we're antsy, not all of us. Because there's nothing harder for adults, right? We're adults. This is my life. I'm in control of this thing than having to wait in a situation where we could take control. Just like we said a couple weeks ago that trust is really measured by our ability to give God the things that we have control over, not just the things we don't have control over. The ability to persevere is the ability to uh, not simply wrestle, try to wrestle back control in a situation where we are feeling impatient where we don't like waiting because we're getting antsy. And I was thinking about this. I was thinking this is like every phase of life that you can go through as an adult, you experience this. Almost the moment you become an adult. I remember being in college and just knowing that I had years of studying, of reading, of writing, of listening, which I don't like doing very much. And Years of this thinking, I have to just, I have to do this for so long before I do the thing that I really want to do. How many people don't make it through that? And it's not just about formal schooling and education, higher education. It's about any kind of training for anything. When you say, I want to do this thing, I want to be this thing, but I have to wait through something else. How often do we get so antsy that we, we take control and we say, no, I can't. I'm not going to do it. It won't work. How hard that is. How, how many of us, when we, when we uh, find a person and we fall in love and we say, I want to spend the rest of my life with this person, but like, I don't think that we're going to even be able to afford the kind of wedding that we want to have for like five years because of how massive it's going to need to be. And so... We'll move in and we'll live together and we'll basically start our life together, right? I mean, last time I checked, I was in control of this thing and so were you and, you know, we love each other and we're committed, so why not, right? In a situation where someone, you know, I, there's this sense, you know, maybe, maybe I thought in the beginning I need to wait or, or someone tells me you should wait or God's word says to me, like, there's a huge difference between the commitment you made to somebody you need to marry them and the day before you make that commitment. Like, we get antsy. And we go, like, not a big deal. I need to take control. I talk to people who are, who are in, in careers that aren't going as fast as they want, who are in families that aren't going where they want, who are in, like, who are getting close to retirement, who are like, ah, oh, it's right there and I am done. Waiting and persevering Rather than just saying, I don't care, I'm checking out, I'm giving up, or wrestling back control is one of the hardest things for us, and it says so much about us. Uh, Dave Ramsey, the guy who you know, writes and tells everybody how to save money and stuff like that, one of his famous quotes that he gives is he says that, he says that contemporary or modern generations um, of, he said, he said, most people today, current generations, expect to reach in their first five years of marriage the level of wealth that their parents had when they retired. Which is totally true. 
It's like, okay, I get it. We're in the tiny apartment now, but, you know, I mean, it's not unreasonable to think, you know, we should be, you know, where our parents are at. And so what he said we do is that we spend money that we don't have, right, to buy things that we don't need, that it turns out we don't even end up wanting. Why? What's the problem? The problem is that we can. As long as we have the ability to jump ahead, how often will we, right? Why? Because we get antsy. We're not that different from kindergartners waiting in line to go to recess or something. And so the persevering is hard for us. We get restless, we get fidgety, we get discontent. And as adults, we can do something that we can't do. As kids, we can change things. And then there are those of us who assume that because we can't cut ahead, we can't jump ahead, we can't change things, then the one thing we can do is act like a big fat baby while we're going through it, right? Like, I can't control it, so it's okay for me to just do whatever I want, to just totally freak out, right? And this is something that is not really a sign of perseverance, but rather is us going, if I could, I'd change it in a second. And in the meantime, I'm going to let God know it and every single person that I ever talk to or tell them how they can pray for me. To live in a promise is to live as though it is real even when you know it hasn't yet come to fulfillment. And most of the things that we read about in the Bible are things that already have happened or that will happen when Christ returns. And we live in the middle of those things. So we're living for things that have been fulfilled or things that we're waiting to have fulfilled. And we are living on these promises that God makes us. And the question is, can we live in those things? Or do we simply ignore them like they're background noise? The last part of it that's the best part is the payoff. That's when the promise comes to fulfillment. We're going to talk more about that next week when we light the Advent candle of fulfillment. We talk about how Christ fulfilled. But we read about in Hebrews 6, and thus it says, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now, he did not perfectly wait, if you know the story. But he patiently waited and obtained the promise. He ultimately did live as though God were going to fulfill his promise. And we read about in Genesis 15 what that ends up meaning about him. This is when God, uh, it's kind of the big one. It's when God changes his name and everything. We read, and he brought him outside, God brings him outside and says, look toward the heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. It says he believed the Lord and what did that do? It counted as righteousness. A lot of us have heard that phrase before. We kind of pass right over it. We think, yeah, faith is good. We should believe, right? But what it says about Abraham here, I'll say it again, is that Abraham was a righteous man in the end. But what made him righteous? Was it the things that he did? If so, then I don't know how um, sleeping with your wife's servant and trying to have a kid that way because you're feeling impatient counts as acting righteously. 
It says that he believed in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. We read in Romans 4, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who, ju- who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You see, people talked about Abraham at this time like he was the greatest guy in the world. He was the the best behaving, most disciplined, most sacrificial, moral, obedient guy ever. And that's why our faith is built on him. But what Paul's reminding the church as he's writing here in Romans, is he's saying, Abraham didn't boast, he didn't have anything to boast about in terms of what he himself did by following the law. What made him righteous was that he believed God when God said something. That cashed in, and what came back to him was righteousness. He was given righteousness. The payoff is this, the righteous are those who believe This literally redefined everything about how people understood religion, about how they understood faith. Faith and religion and the church is not about following all the right rules. It isn't about giving up the most stuff, and it isn't about coming from the best and purest family It's about believing the things that God has already said. And how is it known that we believe those things? How do we know it? Because a life is evidence of the things that we believe in and that we trust in. And the truth is, Jesus talked about this so much in his ministry, that belief is deeper than action. You can talk big without actually acting. You could talk a big game. You can say lots of things that sound impressive without actually living those things out. It's actually pretty easy to do and not live the things out. But you can also act like a very good person and do the right things without believing in who God says he is. But the one thing that you can't fake is belief. And it... In Romans, Paul talks about this. He says, listen, um, if somebody believes that they have to work for something, then they're going to work for it. And they're going to say, I've earned it. My wages, I've earned it, right? But someone who lives as though, who believes that God has, has promised it to them already will have a life that shows that. And Paul makes it really clear. That is not just a person who says, I don't care how I live or what I do. Because those people truly don't believe. You can see it in the way that they live, too. The truth is that working for something doesn't actually guarantee that we'll get it either, right? It's still based on some faith and expectation. Someone's going to pay you for your work. I don't know know if you've ever done that. Have you ever, like, worked and expected a paycheck, and then it didn't come? And then that was it. And a lot of us, a lot of people, just to be safe, 
are like, I'm gonna work super hard to earn this thing for myself because I just can't accept the fact that it really is just faith in Christ alone that would save me. So the ability to trust God's promise is to trust that he is in control, that he will provide a way to the Messiah. And I don't think that there's anything harder than giving up control. This comes back to control again and again. That when God promises something to his people, that our response to it is so often to wrestle back control, to fight for control. And if we can't get control, to make it very clear to everyone what we would do if we did have control. Rather than to say, here's the promise, and I believe that thing, I trust that thing. There's freedom in that. There's joy in that. And ultimately, the reason why we spend this whole season preparing for the birth of Christ, the Messiah, is that what the Bible also says is that he is the yes to all the questions. It says, it says to, all the, to all the questions, the answer is yes in Jesus, basically. How does God answer our needs and our questions and all of it? He answers it the same way with Jesus. And that's why we celebrate. 